Well, good morning, saints, and good morning, sinners. As you can see, I'm coming at you live uh, over <laughs> overlooking our great city of Winnipeg. Uh, school has obviously started this week, and then people, to add to it, are asking me, when are we going to be able to gather together again as a community? Well, I have an answer for you, actually. Uh, the leadership of Seoul has set the date of October 18th as our official um, kickoff date of coming back to having live gatherings in the building, and we will still continue with our live stream for those folks who are still unsure about meeting together. And so right now, we are currently planning um, an effective and a safe re-entry plan that includes soul kids, live music, and preaching, and you. And so uh, save the date. Watch out for our, our social media updates because we'll begin to roll out all the information about the re-entry via social media. So you're going to want to stay tuned to our uh, our uh, Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter account. Uh, also, our website will carry that as well. Let's get into our life lesson today. As many of you know, I grew up in a pastor's family. And in case you didn't know, my dad was the pastor of Living Word Temple for uh, 27 years. And as far back as I could remember, uh, once a month at the end of a service, my dad would actually make his way down from the pulpit, not on top of the pulpit, but the platform, I should say. He'd make his way down from the platform to the front of the church, and there was a table always there. That table had a white tablecloth on it, and then there were some silver dishes that were covered with special silver lids, and they had a little cross on the top of them. My dad would... Uh, uh, step behind the table, a couple of deacons or elders from the church would step beside him and uh, they would begin to take the bread and begin to break this bread up into small little pieces. The edges of the bread was always cut off. I remember that very clearly beforehand. And uh, the other trays were filled with uh, these little cups that were filled with Welch's grape juice, little glass cups. And uh, scripture was always read out. And then there was a prayer. Music was always played softly on the piano. And uh, it was always a hymn that focused on the cross. Now, this was a very serious process that took place during these services. And after the bread was broken into those little pieces, it was passed around uh, the church. And then the deacons would come and they would pass around these little glasses of grape juice. Uh, the cups would then be collected after the uh, ceremony was over. And the atmosphere during the entire time was very solemn. And so I grew up in a church with this tradition, ritual, sacrament, observance. And it took a while before I actually began to understand what it was all about. Once I did, and I began to do research and began to study and look more into my faith, this ceremony, this tradition, this ritual, as I prefer to call it a sacrament, is usually practiced in most churches along with baptism and actually this sacrament and baptism uh, are one of the two ordinances that Jesus actually commands the church to observe now the beauty for me is that here at Seoul people come from a variety of different backgrounds and so we have Pentecostal we have Mennonite we have Pentecostal and Pentanites and we have Baptists and Charismatics and we have Anglicans and Lutherans and Catholics and we have no faith background at all for some people. And so all these different Christian traditions and non-tradition come together uh, and they either have a formal understanding of what communion is about or an informal 
And we, at Seoul, we participate together in the celebration. Now, historically, the most common terms to describe the tradition is the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, or the Eucharist. And each Christian tradition calls it something different, right? The original supper was a Passover meal where Jesus adapted and applied the meaning of that Jewish feast to himself. We read that in the Gospels. The idea is that just as Israel was delivered uh, from the death of their firstborn and from slavery to Pharaoh through the blood of the Passover lamb, so you and I are spared God's judgment and slavery to sin by the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the Bible doesn't simply require us to use any certain term. As a matter of fact, Scripture doesn't really give this celebration a formal name. I didn't know if you knew that. Paul calls it a couple of things. He calls it the cup of thanksgiving in verse 21 of chapter, or t- verse 16 of chapter 10. In verse 21, he calls it the cup of the Lord, calls it the Lord's table. That The term Eucharist comes from a Greek word, which means thanksgiving. Communion comes um, from the word koinonia that the, the King James translates uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. So, and, 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 and that koinonia means sharing, uh, um, um, sorry, it me. Yeah, it means the, the sharing that, that comes together, the sharing, the, the participation. And since Paul mentions the Lord's table, it's not much different than when we call it the Lord's Supper. So now, like I said, Scripture doesn't give it a particular name. So Christians are really free to use any term that helps them understand what they're talking about when they're sharing bread and wine in the commemoration of Jesus' death. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in our passage that's before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Now, if you remember, last week I mentioned that the church in Corinth was a dumpster fire. I haven't changed my mind. It still is. It totally was, I should say. And now we have Paul addressing more problems that he's finding in the church, especially in the way that they conducted their worship gatherings and it included how the church participated together in communion. All right? The Lord's Supper, Eucharist. Now remember, this is a letter from a friend. And he begins to really uh, be heartbreak honest with them. Are you with me? And we pick it up in, in verse 17, and it says this. Paul writes to the church. Now remember, he's writing to the church. Somebody is reading this to everybody that's there. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there has to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So Paul is speaking to the church coming together. He's not talking about a morning gathering like the 909 or the 1111 of what we used to have before COVID. Paul has in his mind this thing called the uh, agape feast or the feast of love and this is really a, an act of sharing that grew out of the atmosphere of the early church described back in the book of acts where people would come together at the end of the day they shared uh, with one another the, the resources and riches that god had provided for them and nobody was ever left out and so this r- idea rapidly grew into what is known as a common meal and they all shared it together that's why they call it the love feast agape love you got it, it comes together Today, we would call it potluck, you know, um, salmonella surprise, uh, botulism buffet, you know, and unfortunately, because of COVID, we, we don't have these anymore, right? We, don't, we can't do potlucks right now because of COVID. 
And to be honest, I've always enjoyed potlucks. I do. I, I love it when uh, everyone brings something either sweet or salty and savory because I'm a salty, savory type of guy. And uh, I love to experience and to taste what other people prepare and possibly uh, a little too much. But anyway, when our life group would meet pre-COVID, I enjoyed waiting to see what other people would be bringing to the table. And we would all share it together. Everything would be laid out on the table in our house and we'd all share it. And I would find myself eating the goodies that were brought by other people and I would neglect my own creations because I know what my stuff tastes like. I want to know what everything else tastes like. And that's sort of what the early church was doing as well. Not quite, but sort of. And unfortunately, though, the church in Corinth was being spoiled by cliques or, or divisions among them. And these cliques, these divisions that Paul mentions earlier in the letter literally ruined the gathering of the church so that he can actually say to them, look, at your gatherings do more harm than good. Now, when Paul addresses what's going on in the church, he says that he's, he's not surprised that there are divisions in the church. That word there translated is actually the word heresies. Uh, it's more than just having a difference of opinions. And Paul's not surprised at that. Now, again, we know that not everybody has the same point of view. Not everybody has the same background. Not everybody has the same training and upbringing. We get that, right? And so there are bound to be different points of view that are, that, uh, uh, are uh, represented throughout any body, and that's just normal. Paul, though, here when he's talking to the Corinthians, he uses the word heresies, which implies that this is more than just a difference of opinion. Some of these folks were way out in left field. You know, whenever I do an open mic at Seoul, I've, I've always been asked by people if I'm ever afraid that somebody is going to say something false or crazy. Well, the answer is I, I know somebody's going to say something false or crazy or nuts. That's just the way we are, right? But I don't, uh, I don't get worried about that. You know, I was asked, are you, are you ever afraid that somebody's going to say something and sort of like some heresy is going to go through the church? I don't see it that way. As a matter of fact, in this verse, there, Paul says, you know, there has to be heresies among you, which I think is actually, turns out, look, at that makes it, there's a great teaching opportunity. And I think this is what Paul's recognizing here. There's nothing wrong with differences of opinion. They ought to be freely aired because that gives the opportunity for those who are instructed in the Word of God and those who are instructed in theology to be able to answer people with certain questions and ideas. It's not about what I feel. It's about what did the scriptures say. And Paul says he understands that, but unfortunately in the Corinthian church, it had gone so much further. If you remember way back when, when we started the book, there were some Corinthians that said, look, I follow Paul. Others said they followed Peter. Some said they followed Apollos, when really they all should have been following Christ alone. And there were various factions in the church. They were vying for predominance. You know, who's number one? And they're also within that. You had people who were involved in sexual immorality. You had people who were taking each other to court. Uh, nobody was addressing the fact that somebody is sleeping with their stepmom. And, you know, some had uh, drinking problems, amongst other things. And while the church should have really had an influence on this pagan city, the reality was is that the city had quite an influence on the church. And those divisions in the church then begin to affect everything else. And so divisions are a tragic thing, especially when the church is trying to meet together. And even more so when we try to participate together in the Lord's Supper. You know, how can there be communion? How can there be 
a coming together when there's division. You know, no one answered these heresies, right? Remember, I said this church is a, it's a dumpster fire church. And so they had broken into these harmful di divisions, and now it's creating chaos within the church. And Paul says, no doubt there has to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. There are some commentators, and I, and I lean this way, I think that Paul's really laying on the sarcasm here. It's really thick. And now Paul goes on now to describe the harm and the danger that was coming from these divisions in the church and these disorderly practices that came as a result. He writes in verse 20, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for you eat uh, as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Well, certainly not. Obviously, in the, the early church, they didn't have church buildings. Uh, Sunday was not a day off, right? It was their custom to gather primarily on Sunday evenings in the homes of possibly wealthy members because they would have been at bigger homes, and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Their worship time started, like I said, with this love feast, with this agape feast, and then they would move on and they would participate in the Lord's Supper together. That was the tradition, but the problem in Corinth was that the wealthy members would obviously get there first with their scrumptious dinners, and they would begin to gorge themselves in their own little cluster. And when the slaves and other people arrived, there was hardly anything left over of the food. It was all gone, and there were people who came to church who are now left hungry at the end of the day. Maybe they only had a crust of bread to chew on, or, you know, meanwhile, there's a family over there eating Kentucky Fried Up Chucking, right? Uh, steak or lobster or perhaps others were completely left out. There was nothing left. But even worse, a few of the wealthy would fill their wine glasses a little bit too much, if you know what I'm saying. And now they're getting drunk. So drunkenness, of course, is sin. But here, drunkenness is mentioned along the sin of allowing another person to go hungry. And as a result, they completely miss the significance and the purpose of coming together. And Paul says, you know, this is not what the church ought to be. Instead of, you know, Instead, we should be caring for one another. But you guys, you're excluding each other. And even worse, you're eating and you're drinking so much that unfortunately you're actually coming to the Lord's table drunk. That's hard for many of us to accept, but that's what was actually happening in Corinth. And that actually raises a lot of questions that we have to ask, you know. And I hear this all the time. You know, the wine that Jesus drank and the early church drank, it was, it was grape juice. It wasn't alcoholic. Can I just say that people got drunk in Corinth? Boom, like mind-blowing, right? So aside from getting drunk here, what is even worse is that some of the Christians seemed to shrug off any rebuke along this line. They're indifferent to what's going on, and they, they exhibited a careless, almost a defiant attitude, uh, and that the lack of a need to minister to one another. Why then does Paul tell the Corinthians that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. It's because they weren't participating. Even though they were, looked like they, they knew what they were doing, they weren't participating in the right spirit. Hear me out. They weren't sharing. And we read about the Lord's Supper in the Gospels and, and how it came about. And now Paul 
deals with it at length here in the letter. And before we go further, I, I need to ask all of us this question. What does Jesus Christ really mean to you? I mean, like, what does Jesus really mean to you in the moment? The, the, the moment that comes for you to make a decision between right and wrong or for good against evil? And what does he mean to you when you're under pressure or, or tempted to explode with anger or succumb to lust or whatever? What does he mean to you? And I find it personally very fitting that Paul ends this long section where he's been dealing with all the troubles that are going on in Corinth. And, and it's almost like he holds up a mirror. And in effect, before these people, he, he's allowing them to see how they were behaving at the communion table. He's pointing it up to them. It's, it's right in their face. And nothing is more revealing to see what our attitude is when we come to the central act of Christian worship. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. Paul is showing them that they are approaching the Lord's table with a, a, a totally wrong spirit. There were two things he says that were wrong. They were dividing up in the church, obviously. So they had these destructive divisions, these cliques within the church. And secondly, their attitudes were horrible. These people were fragmented. They were selfish. They were uncaring. They were indifferent to human needs, basic human needs. And the church was hurting the cause of Christ rather than helping it. And so Paul holds up the mirror, and he now tries to draw a contrasting picture about the table of what it should look like. That the Lord's Supper is an expression of unity. It's an expression of unity of the church. And what the Corinthians are doing is a far cry from that. They're acting selfishly with one another. And so when Paul asks, don't you guys have homes to eat and drink in, he's not saying that it's wrong to have church suppers. What he means is, if you're all coming together, all you're coming here for is to eat and to drink. Well, look at you guys, you can do that at home. If that's all it means, if you're not going to care for those who have nothing among you and be concerned to meet the needs of those who are hungry, then you might as well just stay home and eat and drink there. You know, when you come together as a church, you ought to be concerned about the needs and the hunger of all people. And he begins to teach. And he begins to make this amazing claim here. And sometimes we read over it. We don't see it. But he says, For when I received from the Lord, I've also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul clearly means that the one who told him uh, what went on in the room that night was Jesus himself. What Paul passes on to the church now, what Paul passes on to us, is Jesus' emphasis on these two remarkable symbols, the bread and the cup. Now, deliberately during the Passover feast, Jesus took the bread, and when he broke it, in order to make it available for all those around the table to eat, he said to them that this is my body. Now, unfortunately, some have taken that to mean that he was teaching them that the bread actually becomes the body. But I think it's very clear, if you look at the story, that what Jesus meant, it was a symbolic sense. Because if it was literal, then there would be two bodies of Christ present in the room. One in which he lived and 
one which he held in the bread. But there are some traditions that teach that that is the actual body of Christ. But clearly, when we read the scriptures, we see that Jesus meant this as a symbol. This represents my body, which is for you, he says. And so when we gather together, which we'll be doing a little bit in a few minutes, but when we gather together and we take the bread and it's broken, we pass it amongst ourselves. We are reminding ourselves of Jesus's, uh, of Jesus is in our life. I've often heard people say, when the bread is being passed out, that they say, this is Jesus' body broken for you. Um, it's actually not really an accurate rending of Scripture. In fact, the Scripture tells us that not a bone of his body would be broken. Rather, this bread, this body, is intended for us to live on. And it's the symbolism that's coming across. And so Jesus is the one by whom we live. And as Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's what the bread symbolizes. That Jesus is to be our power by which we obey the commands of God from the Word of God. Those commands like love one another, forgive one another, be tender, be merciful and kind to one another, be courteous to one another, do not return evil uh, for evil, but pray for those who persecute you, mistreat you, and misuse you. And his life in us enables us to be what God asks us to be. We live by means of, of Christ. Jesus said it himself in John chapter 6, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, remains in me and I in him. Just as the Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And that captures very accurately what the bread symbolizes to us. Later, Jesus takes the cup. The wine of the cup symbolizes his blood, which he says is the blood of the new covenant, the, the new arrangement for, for living that God has made for us. Blood is life. And when we participate in communion, we are symbolically saying that we no longer live for our slouts, that we are living for Christ. And we are reminded that he spilt his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and that we are truly grateful, but also we agree that we are no longer there to live for ourselves. And that's why Paul said early in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And so as believers, we have to relinquish our rights our rights to our life. We have to die to ourselves, to our own will and agenda, as I, I mentioned that in our life lesson two weeks ago. And therefore, when we take the cup and we drink it, we are publicly proclaiming that we agree that the sentence of death upon our old self, right, is done with. And I believe that the, the Christian life is this continual experience of life coming out of death. And so God cannot be glorified as long as we, we ourselves insist that we need to be glorified. So what do we do? We surrender. We surrender our right to take credit 
for things. We surrender our right to have people praise us and affirm us, whatever, in order that God who is working in us may have glory. He may have that praise. And that is what this cup means, this forgiveness of sins. It's all about Jesus. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus said of himself. He said in John 12, he said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You know, I, I, I do not think anything is more descriptive of the emptiness of life that, than that phrase, only a single seed. Lonely, bored, miserable, possibly unhappy. And I think sometimes that's life. Uh, and that's the life that happens when we try to live for ourselves, when we try to worry about our own needs, when we just worry about our own rights. But the Christian life is one in which that is freely and voluntarily surrendered. And if a seed falls to the ground and dies, Jesus says it will bring forth much fruit. When we give up ourselves for others, the fruit is there. And by that participation, by that reminder in the cup, this is what we are saying. We're surrendering to Jesus in the moment of communion. When we do communion together, whether it's in your home or whether we're all together under one big roof, and we are consenting to follow Jesus as our Lord, to go to death as he went to death, that we might rise again in the new life of the Spirit. And this, as Paul tells us, is going to go on through the whole age, from the first coming until when Jesus comes back again. And this is constantly repeated. This feast happens all the time. In symbol, we tell, we tell it over and over again. Uh, our Christian faith, we remind of this over and over again, that the old life dies in order that the new life must uh, live. We were reminded every time we break the bread. In the last paragraph of the section, Paul makes it very clear on how seriously God himself regards communion, regards the Lord's table. He says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning, against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And they're sombering words here. They, they indicate that God guards the table from unworthy participation. Now, what this means, of course, is what Paul has just been rebuking these Christians at Corinth about. They were participating in an unworthy manner because they were careless, they were selfish, they were indifferent to the needs of others. They were coming to the table in a kind of empty ritual. Go figure. Just going through this mechanical, ceremonial way. And that, Paul says, is dangerous. It's a dangerous practice because it's acting as though the death and life of Jesus means nothing to us. And so he warns us against that. And that's why here at Seoul, we, we warn those who aren't believers, not, don't, don't just participate because everybody else does. It's, it's okay when we bring new people to church and they're part of this and we're doing communion. We just say, hey, sit back, watch, and observe. Just don't do something because everybody else does. We take this seriously, and at some point we hope you will as well. And so if you're a believer, you know, you're, you're welcome to join when we do communion at church. Um, but we should all do a proper self-examination first. That's why Paul says let, let somebody examine himself or herself earnestly and so let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And it's, that word examine means to prove or, or, or literally to qualify, which is interesting. 
Because how do you do that? Because, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to live this absolutely flawless, perfect life because we all know nobody can do that. Even with, with the help that the Spirit of God gives, we still screw up. We still have failures and weaknesses and times of fr- frustration and, and outright times of deliberate evil, right, that come into our existence. So what does it mean when it says to examine yourself? It means to handle your sin honestly. Not to try to cover up and not to try yourself, t- tell yourself that it's not there. It's to admit it, to call it what God calls it and repent, right? Ch- you know, to change your mind about wanting to have it in your life. It's about bringing it to God and allowing God to cleanse us. David writes in the 51st Psalm, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. John Duncan was a prominent Scottish theologian, and he wrote, and he once described communion being held in the Church of Scotland. And when the elements came and a little 16-year-old girl suddenly was there, she was about to receive it, she she turned her head aside and motioned for the elder to take the cup away. She wasn't going to drink it. The professor himself leans in, reaches his arm, and he touches her on the shoulder, And he just says, take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. It's for sinners. (laughs) In my experience, some believers refuse to eat. They won't participate because they feel it's for sinners. Sinners are unworthy, but it's for sinners. And personally, that's, you know, when we abstain from this thing that's offered to us, it's basically a cop-out thinking that God is only going to bring judgment if you participate. But look at its grace. It's grace being offered. It's the picture being brought before you to remind you of what Jesus has done for you. And God pays no attention to those surface things. He, he looks at our hearts. And, and it's, he's after what's going on in our hearts. He doesn't want us to lie to ourselves. He wants us to be honest about our misdeeds. And he's willing to put... a have us put away that wrong spirit and to work within us. Paul says in Ephesians, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. These attitudes that sometimes we have, attitudes of lust, of selfishness, of misdeeds, of division and dishonesty and lying and all these things we face when we come to the table of the Lord, they're brought up in our minds, are they not? And really what God is saying is acknowledge them and thank God for his cleansing grace and participate. Be forgiven by the grace of God. Be reminded every time you participate. And that's why Paul goes on to add, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what does it mean to recognize that? It means two things. I think first it means understanding the meaning of the symbols. The body of Christ is involved. His death on the cross for us. His life made available to us. But then it also means our concern and our care for others who are members within the same body. We are members of one another and we recognize those ties. Paul writes, he says, that is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. 
when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. That's hard, harsh words right here. So not only were many people weak and sick in Corinth, but a good many possibly died. And the discipline of the Lord was intensive and extensive. And it was a very serious problem here in Corinth, which resulted in a drastic disciplinary measure on God's part. And, and we have to ask, you know, what was this sin that is so serious that it brings about this divine judgment? If we go back into the letter, you know, we have to ask ourselves, was it this shocking case of incest that Paul referred to in chapter 5? Was it the lawsuits or the sexual immorality of chapter 6? Was it divorce as it was dealt with in chapter 7? Was it the involvement uh, of idolatry as discussed in chapters 8, 9, and 10? Was it the refusal of some woman in Corinth to wear a head covering last week? Maybe it was none of those. Think about it. The real problem, which resulted in divine discipline here, was that some of the Corinthian Christians refused to wait to eat the Lord's Supper until all the other Corinthians arrived. And those who arrived early seemed to be affluent members of the church, while those who came late were poor, probably were slaves. And when you think about it, it's not too hard for a business owner to leave work early, but when you're a slave... So can you imagine this? A church with as many problems as this Corinthians assembly is not as severely disciplined by God for incest or immorality as possibly for failing to wait for somebody to arrive at the supper table before eating. Why would God be so severe as to discipline many with sickness and possibly death because of their lack of table manners. Now, again, this judgment doesn't mean eternal condemnation. It's just, it's divine discipline. And God knows that pain often makes us stop and think. You know, you found that to be true. Many of us have suddenly become aware that, you know, we're drifting away from our closeness with Christ when, when pain, sort of, some sort of pain comes into our life. And it's interesting on how that gives us a chance to think and to review our lives. That's God's hand. And that's what's happening here at Corinth. It says some were weak, some were sickly, because God was enabling them to take a look. It was a red flag of warning that was going off. Like, watch now, look out. You're going too fast. You're going to be tripped up by the world around you. You're reflecting some of their attitudes, some of their reactions, and adopting some of their waves. Watch out. Slow down. Think things through. Paul even says that some of them fell asleep which means that some of them possibly could have died, you know, that they have rejected God's tender, loving warnings. They had persisted in their evil to the point where their hearts were possibly hardened. We don't know. But you know what? This still happens today. God is no different. You know, some of us perhaps are weak and sickly because we need time to think through what's happening in our lives. Now, not all sickness comes from the disciplinary hand of God. I need to say that. But sometimes God uses that to open a door to our heart that nothing else would open otherwise. 
So don't think that every time you're sick, it's the judgment hand of God. I'm not saying that. But it doesn't hurt to ask yourself during that time is, you know, is God trying to slow me down? Is his loving concern for me? Is he, am I drifting maybe into something that's dangerous that I should actually stop and rethink? You know, he's got my attention. Maybe it's my relationships with others, my attitudes, you know, my, my habits in life and what I'm for. Are these right? Are these wrong? Maybe he's just trying to get you to rethink. So take a good, careful look. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God and deal with some of the stuff in your life because God will always give you a, a chance to change. A loving parent puts up barriers and will say, look, look, you're getting into trouble. Now stop. Take a look, right? And Paul implies that if you, as a professed Christian, can go on week after week and month after month doing something, maybe you're living in a relationship or you're holding an attitude that you know is wrong and nothing ever happens to you in the, in the way of judgment, then it's very likely that you have been one of those people who have fallen asleep. And yet God, what he's doing is he uses this celebration, he uses this sacrament as a constant reminder of him saying, you need, I need to straighten up some things in my life, and this is an opp opportunity to hit the reset button. In my office, I have uh, several photographs of my family. If you were to ask me, are those uh, pictures there because I can't remember m my family? I could be offended, but I would probably answer no. Those pictures aren't there to jog my memory. They're there to touch my heart. So believe it or not, I actually have a heart. But I look at those pictures that are on my desk and on my wall and in my bookshelves, and I look at my loved ones, and they remind me of my loved ones for whom I am temporarily separated from at this time. And I think about what each of them means to me. I recall good times. I look at my granddaughter's pictures and good times, or my wife or my kids and their wives, good times that we've had together. I can thank God for giving them to me, and I can pray for his ongoing protection and grace in their lives. And I look forward to seeing them again. Maybe it's on the weekend or maybe it's in the evening. To feel their hugs, believe it or not, especially from James and to enjoy their company for them to make us laugh. And so the value of a picture is emotional because it touches our hearts. In the Lord's Supper, I want to leave this with you, that Jesus left us a picture of himself to remember him by. And we should pause and we should look at it often. And when we do, it should remind us of his great love for us, shown uh, supremely on the cross. It should fill our hearts with the desire to see him when he comes again. It should make us look at ourselves and ask the questions, is there anything in my life that needs to be dealt with before I actually meet him face to face? It should touch our hearts and make us say, thank God uh, for, for what he has given us in Christ. The Lord's Supper is a time for us to remember Jesus. And Paul now closes with how God is concern that this be done in such a way to bring about acts of love and courtesy for one another. In verse 33, he writes, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give you further directions. You know, today we no longer have agape feasts, right? 
And I wonder, amongst other things, if this keeps us from making the same error of merging the ordinary meal with the Lord's Supper. See, God's desire for us is we might begin to act differently and begin to be more thoughtful and courteous towards one another, especially within your immediate family. And I think this is where it has to begin to show, not necessarily with our friends, but with our families. It's families first, and then it moves on to friends from there. And when he says wait for one another, he doesn't necessarily mean the Lord's table, though that's a good thing. What he's really saying is is be aware of the needs and the problems of others and, and do something to meet those needs. Do something to help them in those areas so that when you come together, your meetings are not a curse but a blessing. And in your coming together, it's a delight a delight to everyone who comes because your attitudes and your reactions with one another are right and love fills the room, it fills the assembly. And this is what Paul has been aiming at all along. The importance that as believers we begin to act out the, the, the central meaning of the Christian life, that our old selfish ways have ended and the new life which thinks of others, right, is to be expressed. The blood and the bread are indications of that. And so today, before we participate together, I want to make sure that we see that the Lord's Supper is about relationship. It's about coming together. It's about coming together and participating with what God wants to do with and in us. And so understand, by doing the the Lord's Supper, by participating, it is meant to be a spiritual activity that we do together. And for us, it's actually a way for us to connect with God. Bugs up here. Sorry. So what I want you to do now is I want you to do some introspection to examine. I want you to ask yourself three questions, and they're all on the screen. The first one is, am I being real with God? Am I being real with myself? And am I being real with others? You know, are you being real with God? God sees your heart. Enough said, right? And we have to be honest with God. We have to believe in faith that God is who he said he is. Did he really make the heavens and the earth? Did he really send Jesus, his son, to live a perfect life? And if I really believe that I'm living in obedience, you know, do I actually believe I'm living in obedience? And, and do I believe who he says he is? In 1 John, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if we truly believe in God, do we... Do our lives actually show that belief? Or do we take God's name in vain? And I'm not talking about the cussing sense. But we take on, yes, I'm a Christian, but I just don't live it out. I think it's vain that we decide that we want to align ourselves with Jesus, but we don't choose to live it out. Are you being real with yourself? When it comes to being real with yourself, you know, we can't lie, right? What has God released you from? What has he saved you from? What has he delivered you from? What has he rescued you from? But what are we trying to hold on to? What is your precious, right? What is your Lord of the Rings sin? Your bondage that will take, you know, that you will take with you, your little pet, and God is asking you to release it right now. What are you holding on to? What is God asking you to let go of? Do you have a barrier between you and God? 
Maybe you need to slow down. You need to analyze what you're holding on to. And finally, maybe you just ask yourself, am I being real with others? Matthew 5 says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. God is saying, hang on, people. If you're going to gather together, if you're going to sing praises, if you're going to talk the talk, make sure your relationships are right. And we wonder why we don't connect with God uh, uh, or, or, or when we, we pray or we don't connect with Him when we sing or we don't feel the presence, right? Or we don't hear God or maybe we feel that God doesn't hear us. God maybe is asking you, He's trying to get your attention. How are your relationships with other people? Are you angry with people? Do you hold grudges? Are you unforgiving? Are you bitter? Are you in the midst of an argument with a spouse or, or with somebody you care for? Maybe you just don't like your kids. I don't know. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's lying. So here you are. You're at the table, and God says, look at I want you to be real with me. I want you to be real with yourself. But, hey, I want you to be real with others as well. And so the Lord's Supper causes us to get real with relationships that we have broken. It causes us to have to reconcile and fix things and come back together with God and with each other. And when I'm real with God and I'm real with myself and I ask for uh, and receive forgiveness, then I can also be real with others. Right? We need to ask for and give forgiveness to others. And so if there's a relationship that you need to fix today, I would encourage you to go ahead and do your best to do that. Do your best about being right with God. Give it your best. And receive the Lord's Supper in the process. And maybe today you're sitting back and you're going, Jerry, I tried, but it's not going to happen. These people are nuts or whatever. Listen, as far as it is upon you, try your best to deal with the people. And if it's impossible to reconcile, make every effort to live in peace. Commit it to God and move on. And so today, just before we participate in, together in the Lord's Supper, we're called to examine ourselves. I want to invite you in a prayer of forgiveness with me. Here I am standing on the roof of our facility, overlooking our city. And wherever you are, wherever you're watching from, I want you to respond with an audible, forgive us, God. I will say a sentence, and I will pause. In that pause, on the screen, you'll see, forgive us, God. Follow along with me. For all the hurtful things we have said to each other, forgive us, God. For all the things we should have said but didn't, for ignoring the lonely, for changing ourselves just to be popular, for going along with the crowd, for listening to those who didn't have our best interests at heart, for ignoring the hungry, 
for ignoring you, for asking you for worthless things, for wanting what we don't need, for taking what we don't want, for taking for granted all the good gifts you give us, for believing we're alone. We believe in a God of second chances. We rely on the forgiveness and the grace promised us by Jesus. May we come to your table, the table of Christ today as new creations. And may we stand and move on this week as forgiven people. Amen. I invite you to get your elements ready. I have in my hand our new communion elements that we will be using now that COVID is in place. In top is a wafer, and in the bottom is the juice. So take a hold of your elements. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this bread is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. took the bread and he gave thanks and so God I thank you for sending your son Jesus and he broke it he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me so let's participate together in the same way after supper he took the cup saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's receive the elements together. Creator God, we take the body and the blood of your Son into our bodies. Let Jesus be a part of us as you are a part of him. And so guide our hearts, our thoughts, and allow us to be one in the body of Christ. And may Christ be part of all we think about and all that we do. And may his body and his blood nourish and make us whole. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.